<coughs> this is the last day of this July-August 2019 seven-day session. And we'll take up another koan today. This is from the uh, Blue Cliff record. Number 80, Joshu's A Newborn Baby. And it's a fairly short uh, case. A monk asked Joshu, does a newborn baby possess the six senses or not? Joshu said, it's like a ball bobbing along on swift flowing water. And the monk later asked Tosu, what is the meaning of a ball bobbing along on swift flowing water? Tosu said, moment by moment it flows on without stopping. Uh, we're going to skip the biographical information we have on Joshu because we so often read uh, read it. He was, just very briefly, he said to have lived to be 120. Uh, he had his first uh, awakening at the age of 18, and then uh, his, what we're told, was full awakening at, at the age of 56. And then he just traveled uh, until the age of 80, when he finally settled down and began teaching at his own temple. So every single thing we read, every dialogue we read involving Joshua means that he was at least 80 uh, at the time. Here he was probably 100 at least. Um, Tosu... His Chinese name is uh, Tozi. Um, I do my best to pronounce Chinese, but uh, it's bound to be imperfect. Uh, Tosu um, was 41 years younger than Joshu at, the, at, at this koan. So we do have, reading again from Zen's Chinese heritage, we have, uh, for, uh, let's use the Japanese name, Tosu. He was a disciple of Suibi, who also appears in one or two koans. He first studied the meditation techniques of the Anapana Sutra, and uh, the footnote here says that it's basically uh, breath practice. And then later he read the Flower Garland Sutra and began training under Kui Wei. That's that's Zuibi, yeah. He came to enlightenment under under Kui Wei, and then he roamed throughout China. Uh, eventually returned to his old home and settled on Mount Tosu. He built a thatched hut and remained obscure for more than 30 years. 
but eventually his uh, his accomplishments could not be concealed anymore, and the great Zhao Zhou, Joshu, came looking for him. And here's a dialogue, another dialogue between those two. Uh, one day, Joshu came to near uh, Mount Tosu. Tosu, they often took the name of the mountain, these masters. So this Tosu is, was on Mount Tosu. Joshu came there, and uh, Tosu just says, very spare, Tosu left the mountain. They met each other on the road. Joshu asked him, Aren't you the host of Mount Tosu? And then Tosu uh, made as though he were a beggar. He said, Tea? Salt? A coin? Please help me. Then Joshu went up to Tosu's hut on the mountain and sat down inside. Later, Tosu returned to the hut carrying a jug of oil. Joshu said, Long have I heard of Tosu, but since coming here, all I've seen is an old guy selling oil. Of course, he's throwing down the gauntlet. See if he can, how Tosu re- responds. Tosu said, So you've only seen an old guy selling oil, but you haven't recognized Tosu. Okay, he hits the ball back over the net, and then Joshu says, What is Tosu? And then Tosu lifted up the jug of oil and yelled, Oil! Oil! And Joshu asks, What do you say about the one who undergoes the great death and thus attains life? Tosu said, He can't make the journey at night. He must arrive in the daylight. And Joshu said, I've long committed thievery, but you're worse than me. Thievery, uh, generally in Zen uh, Dharma dueling, uh, a thief is a compliment. It's uh, someone who steals away our delusions. So he Sounds that he ended up here, Joshu, um, praising Tosu. Here's another one. Uh, Zen master Tosu entered the hall and addressed the monks, saying, All of you come here searching for some new words and phrases, collecting brilliant things which you intend to stick in your own mouth and repeat. But this old monk's energy is failing, and my lips and tongue are blundering. I don't have any idle talk to give you. There are other other cases where we read about these masters uh, at a very advanced age who, who just come out and they say, I've got nothing for you. I'm old, I'm tired. Then he continues, If you ask me, then I will answer you directly. 
but there is no mystery that can be compared to you yourself. I won't teach you some methods to collect wisdom. I will never say that above or below there's a Buddha, a Dharma, something ordinary or something sacred, or that you will find it by sitting with your legs crossed. You all manifest a thousand things. It is the understandings that arise from your own life that you must carry into the future, reaping what you sow. I have nothing to give you here, neither overtly nor by inference. I can only speak to all of you in this manner. If you have doubts, then question me. A monk asked, When it is not received overtly or by inference, then what? Tosu said, Are you trying to collect wisdom? And then he left the hall. So it seems from from our reading of uh, this book and other books that uh, for all of its uh, greatness, the Tang Dynasty and the one after it, this ancient Chinese, uh, it seems that the, that the um, run-of-the-mill monk uh, seemed to think that the more of these more koans and other sayings that they could memorize and then uh, pass on to others, um, the better off they were. And the, the masters recognized that this has nothing to do with Zen practice, just memorizing things. And so you hear these Chinese masters warning about this and decrying this, this trying to impress people by memorizing all these things. It was very much part of Confucian culture, uh, rote learning, memorizing uh, the the words, the wisdom, the wise words of ancestors, uh, and uh, somehow imagining that that way you can acquire that wisdom. We know differently in Zen. It's not Zen is not about acquiring anything; it's about losing, losing. Losing so that we can uh, reveal our own innate wisdom. It's another exchange. A monk asked, In the entire store of sutras, is there any one particularly important is there any one particularly important matter or not? Tosu said Demonstrate the teaching of all the sutras. A monk asked, what about when the golden manacles are not open? I think this is a reference to some, um, a metaphor for our, our, mind of wisdom, maybe it's the, the pearl of wisdom that we each have within us that uh, is uh, 
stored, uh, protected by these golden manacles. So what about when the golden manacles are not open? Tosu said, they are open. Wide open. Zen has been called an open secret. It's just this. Right in front of our eyes. A monk asked, One dharma universally freshens all beings. What dharma is this? Tosu said, The falling rain. He refuses to get abstract. And He's not dodging the question. He's not. Um, he's. It is the falling rain and the buzzing bee, the drone of the plane. Another monk asked, Who is the master's teacher? The master referring to Tosu. Who is the master's teacher? Tosu said, If you look from in front of him, you can't see his head. If you look from behind him, you can't see his back. Concludes by uh, saying, uh, Zen Master Tosu resided on Mount Tosu for more than 30 years, provoking and advancing Dharma in all directions. Those who came for his instruction often overflowed the hall. The master spoke in, the master spoke in an unimposing manner, answering all questions, aiding each person's development and expressing great meaning with few words. What is, recorded, what is recorded now is but a small portion of what the Master said. The Wang Chao bandit uprising broke out uh, around the year 883. At that time, every place experienced disaster and chaos. Once a crazed bandit brandished a knife at the master and said, What are you doing living here? Tosu calmly continued to teach the Dharma. When he finished speaking, 
the bandit bowed and took off his own clothes to leave as an offering. And now his death says the master became slightly ill. The monks called for a doctor. Tosu said to the congregation, the four great activities of life ebb and flow unceasingly. You mustn't be concerned. I can take care of myself. After saying these words, the master sat in a cross-legged position and passed away. to the case. A monk asked Joshu, does a newborn baby possess the six senses or not? Um, I've outlined this, uh, this, the, this eight levels of consciousness before, uh, and I found that uh, in uh, Yuan Wu's commentary on this koan, he does it himself, so I'm going to read his words about it. Yuan Wu is the editor, was the editor of the Blue Cliff Record, uh, 12th century, I think. Um, and uh, in this this koan, he says uh, he talks about the consciousnesses. Uh, sometimes they're called the say, this, the eight consciousnesses. Um, so, before turning it over to him, the first five are the uh, five ordinary senses that we think of as the senses. Those are the first five consciousnesses. And then the sixth is the conceptual consciousness, or uh, the thinking, thinking consciousness. And then there's uh, the seventh, uh, called manas, M-A-N-A-S, uh, is uh, considered the seat of self-consciousness, the seat of the ego, if you will. And it conveys the data from the other, the first six consciousnesses, that is the, the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the feelings and the thoughts. It conveys all that sense data, uh, into the eighth level, which is the storehouse consciousness, the Adlaya Vijnana, where according to Buddhist psychology, every sense impression we have and every thought, that's one of the senses, is stored, filed away, deposited in this illimitable storehouse consciousness. Now, let's hear what he says.
Originally, we are unable to discriminate among the sense objects before us. That would be a newborn baby. But the subtle inner faculties can produce consciousness, and consciousness can reveal discrimination of forms. This is the sixth consciousness, conceptual thinking. The seventh consciousness is manas. It can take hold of the imaginary things of the world and cause a person to be vexed and troubled so that he doesn't attain freedom and independence. As for the eighth consciousness, it's called the Alaya Vijnana, and it's also called the storehouse consciousness. It contains all the seeds of good and evil. Let me comment on this word imaginary. The seventh consciousness, it can take hold of the imaginary things of the world. Imaginary in the sense that there's no thing, that all the things of the world are no thing. They have no substance to them, and they are in flux constantly. They give the appearance of being things, people and objects. But really, the, the, the appearance is deceptive. It's, it's just movement, change. Yuan Wu continues with his commentary. The monk knew the ideas of the verbal teachings, that is, he knew about these eight consciousnesses, so he used them to question Joshu by saying, does a newborn baby also have the sixth consciousness or not? So it's an intriguing question. This monk was no beginner. He came up with this idea of, I mean, to maybe at the risk of oversimplifying, we could say that he's asking, does a newborn baby have a self. But Yuan Wu continues, um, although a newborn baby is equipped with the six consciousnesses, though his eyes can see and his ears can hear, he doesn't yet discriminate among the six sense objects. At this time, he knows nothing of good and evil, long and short, right and wrong, or gain and loss. A person practicing the way must become again like an infant. Then praise and blame, success and fame, unfavorable circumstances and favorable environments, none of these can move him. Then he is a quote here. We don't know whom he's quoting. Though his eyes see form, he is the same as a blind man. Though his ears hear sound, he is the same as a deaf man. Then Yuan Wu continues. He's like a fool, like an idiot. His mind is motionless as Mount Sumeru. This is the place where patch-robed monks really and truly acquire power. So this this eighth level, that's that's where the money is. The eighth level of, of this, this vast, unmoving storehouse 
It has no particular activity of its own, but constitutes the foundation of all other conscious activities. You could say it's the ground. And we can get a little experience of it in samadhi, when the mind is still. So one commentator suggested that the the mental life of a newborn must be largely at the level of this eighth consciousness. Its uh, its senses and its consciousness are not yet fully developed. We know that when a baby is sound asleep, it's gone. I have somewhere in my Alaya Vijnana, I have a memory of a, a psychoanalyst saying uh, that Zen is um, psychologically adaptive regression. Uh, I don't know that I would repeat that very often, but uh, the idea of, of the way in which we can through zazen, through zen practice, simplify the mind, restoring the purity of the mind, of the mind of a newborn. The simplicity of it, the simple responses, the unselfconsciousness. And then he quotes a sutra, the Hua Yen Sutra, one of the great Mahayana sutras. It's not so much Zen; it's it's the the foundational sutra of the well, the Hua Yen school, or the um, the Hua Yen school of Buddhism. And is what it says: a bodhisattva of the eighth stage, immovability, turns the great Dharma wheel in an atom of dust using the wisdom of non-activity. At all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, he doesn't cling to gain and loss, but lets himself move and flow into the sea of all knowledge. And then Yuan Wu continues, When patch-robed monks get here, they still must not become attached. They follow the occasion freely. When they have tea, they drink tea. When they have food, they eat food. Neither the words concentration nor non-concentration can be applied to this transcendental matter. That's uh, now we're we're forecasting what comes later. Uh, or Tosu said, moment by moment, it flows on without stopping.
And then Yuan Wu quotes another master. This is Master Shan Dao of the Stone Grotto, who said to his monks, Haven't you seen a little one when it's just emerged from the womb? Has the baby ever said, I know how to read the sutras? At that time, it does not know the meaning of having the Buddha nature or not having the Buddha nature. As he grows up, he learns all sorts of knowledge. Then he comes forth saying, I am able and I understand without knowing that this is troubling over illusory dusts. Among the 16 contemplation practices, the baby's practice is the best. When he's babbling, he symbolizes the person practicing the way with his detachment from the discriminating mind that grasps and rejects. That's why I'm praising infants. This is still this master, Shan Dao. I can make a comparison by taking the case of a baby. But if I say that the baby is the way, people of these times would misunderstand. Again, uh, tribute to baby is our own mind uh, that... uh, has gotten so complicated over the course of our life, but which is still our mind, essentially. This mind, this this unmoving mind, this unmoving mind that then becomes all movement. It's because it's unmoving that we adapt to circumstances harmoniously. So the the notion of a separate self, of course, means it hasn't developed yet in a baby. Uh, it does by and by uh, a great deal by uh, through language, language, and especially in, in as far as English, uh, the personal pronouns. I, me, my, our, them, their. Zen practice is a, is a process of finding our way back to the capacity of this stillness that is that anchors us, that grounds us, that is really the, the very essence of stability. In the firming faith and mind, we say. When this one mind rests undisturbed, then nothing in the world offends. And when no thing can give offense, then all obstructions cease to be. 
no other. So now we're still at at Joshua's response to the monk. Um, well, we, no, we're just at the question. The monk's question: Does a newborn baby possess the six senses or not? Um, we can't say yes. Um, we can say yes. A newborn baby possesses the capacity uh, for the six senses. Um, yet undeveloped. So in response, Joshu says, it's like a ball bobbing along on swift flowing water. Wonderful response. And then the monk must have been continued to chew on this response of Joshua. So he, later he encounters Tosu, and he asks Tosu, "What is the meaning of a ball bobbing along on swift flowing water?" Tosu said, "Moment by moment it flows on without stopping." This is the fluid nature of awareness. And it is obstructed to the degree, to the extent that we are clinging to the notion of a self. There is no fixed self. What we call the self is a process. It's not a noun, it's a verb. People sitting here now are not the same people as the ones who drank tea in the opening ceremony. We're not even the same ones as who drank tea last night. Marvelous, marvelous promise of change. We're not stuck with a self. And when we refrain from attaching to the th- to thoughts, especially the thought of the self, then we move along with things as they change. We are in accord with things as they change. The Chinese have the term wu wei, non-doing. This is uh, action uh, devoid of Uh, premeditation or intention, uh, free of desires, free of motivation. Well, I can imagine people saying, well, how can we go through life that way? Uh, Well, it's 
it's not meant to be any kind of absolute thing. There are times when we need to uh, be clear about our intention, um, our motivation, but way more than we really need to. So much, so much we can accomplish uh, when we just adapt to change. Just before Sashin summoned, shot me an email with a, the following words here. The nature of life is change, and the nature of people is to resist change. can understand the self, this illusion of a separate self, as, as um, the, the little eddy, the little swirl that forms when we stick a, when we put a stick into a stream. It certainly gives the appearance of being a thing, that particular little pattern, that swirl, Is it a thing? We give it a word, that makes it a thing, I suppose, but it's just a pattern, a particular pattern in what is just flux. In absorption in our practice, beyond thought, we're pulling the stick out of the stream and just moving along with the stream. Water and clouds are very much admired in Zen as a as kind of a model of the developed person. The uh, a new uh, novice monk in Japan is called Unsui, and Unsui means clouds water. Adapting, flowing harmoniously with situations. This does not mean that there's not a place where we need to take a stand and uh, make a point. It doesn't mean just conformity. That would be a complete misunderstanding of it. it means uh, developing a skill of not asserting oneself any more than necessary, finding a way to work with people, circumstances, conditions, flowing with them. Then we become like water clouds and water. This is a lot of a lot of Taoism in this. Lao Tzu is credited with um, being the originator of the of Taoism. He said, Water is yielding but all conquering. It never attacks 
but always wins the last battle. It's not just newborn babies, but children who have this marvelous fluidity, this mutability. We, we lose it gradually. You see uh, children playing, playing together, and then they get into some little squabble. And then five minutes later, they're laughing and running around happily again. We have that capacity to not cling to things. What a huge asset that is in human relations, interpersonal relations, to be able to let go of things rather than nursing grievances or grudges or anything else. The more sitting we do, the more we inhabit that realm of fluidity. It's just, it's, it's just no fun to hold on to things. Well, easier said than done. Easier for some people than others, based on our personalities. Some people just seem to have a harder time not holding a grudge. But since none of us exists, none of us exists as human, as selves, we still can change. flowing on moment by moment without stopping. Time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows. Thank you.